Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. No will today. Chris Doring is going to join us in a little bit here. We're going to talk about Jermaine Burton, Billy Napier's start, a lot of other stuff. Of course, everything's on the table with CD. We're also going to do something that uh, I experienced a lot over this past weekend. I'll just be honest. We're going to talk about uh, rooting for your rival or rather rooting against your rival in figuring it out. But before we do that, this past Saturday was my first Saturday at home and not traveling since the week after the SEC championship. And actually on that weekend, we drove up to Crystal River, spent the day with the manatees. So basically it was my first Saturday at home without anything to write off of since like roughly mid-August where I wasn't you know, traveling and doing that whole deal. That meant I got to watch some SEC basketball. Shout out Auburn fans because holy cow, that atmosphere looked unbelievable. Kept seeing the tweets from Barrett Salee about ticket prices. We've talked about it before, but how awesome it is to see a football first school truly embrace basketball. It, it is incredible to kind of see that happening before our eyes. And one of the things that I saw while consuming all of that coverage, which by the way, SaturdayDownSouth.com, great place to catch all of your news. Adam, uh, Adam Spencer is doing a great job of starting five and all of that. Go check that out. One of the things that I saw on Saturday was Brian Harson showing up at the, this, the, basically like, hey, all the students are gathering beforehand. Brian Harson is kind of giving high fives, doing the whole deal. And, um, you know, perhaps a cynic would look at that situation and say he wanted to feel the love himself. Why would he want to do that? Because there really hasn't been a ton that Brian Harson has been feeling the love for in the last few months. He rallied nicely at the end of the early signing period. But other than that, it's been pretty rough for the first year head coach. It's more than the fact that he lost five games in a row and his team blew a second half lead in four of those games. By the way, Auburn hasn't had a longer in-season losing streak since the Harry Truman administration. 1950, who could forget? What's more alarming with Harson's start is the personnel mass exodus we've seen on the Plains. Maybe this is just gonna be the trend with first year coaches and the new era, the transfer portal, but I'm still of the impression that it's not really great to see that Auburn had 17 guys enter the transfer portal since it lost in devastating fashion in the Iron Bowl. That doesn't even include someone like Tank Bigsby who apparently entered but then didn't after he was visibly frustrated in multiple games down the stretch. Are we just supposed to be like, well, got to clean up the culture, got to get guys in here who want to be here? Because oftentimes for year one coaches, I default to that and I say, well, let's be patient. Give them at least, you know, a, a couple of years to be able to get their players in here and then we'll kind of, you know, hold off judgment. Brian Harson has only gotten five players from the transfer portal since the end of the season. Meanwhile, I look at a program like South Carolina who has only added six via the transfer portal, but has also lost just six guys since the end of the season. So, and maybe that number is probably climbing by the time that people are listening to this podcast. Of course, it was South Carolina who lost not one, not two, but three coaches to Auburn right around this time last year. Tracy Rocker, Will Friend, Mike Bobo, they were all expected to be on Shane Beamer's staff until Brian Harson said, hey, come on board, come to Auburn. If you're keeping track at home, Rocker stayed at Auburn for, I think, a week and then left for the NFL. Mike Bobo was fired at the end of the season as Auburn's offensive coordinator, and Friend is still on board. Friend is one of just four Auburn on-field assistants who will return in their same role in 2022. To say that that Harson staff has had turnover would be an understatement. 
let's not even really include the rocker part of this because, all right, you know what, he spends a week, it just wasn't necessarily for him or whatever, he gets the better opportunity. Let's call that what it is. We know that Brian Harson fired receivers coach Cornelius Williams after four games. That was the whole fallout of the Georgia State deal. We know that Brian Harson canned Mike Bobo at the end of the season. We know that Nick Eason left Auburn to go back to his alma mater, Clemson. So maybe that's just kind of a unique situation there. But what's most alarming is the most recent staff departure. Derek Mason resigned as defensive coordinator after just one year on the job. He had total autonomy on that side of the ball. And he was linked to the Oklahoma State deal, but nothing officially there. Again, as of this recording, 317 on a Monday. You could say that the defense should have been a lot better at Auburn with how much talent they had in the secondary, but Derek Mason wasn't fired. Unless we find out that Derek Mason is taking a job to be a head coach again, that is a troubling sign for Harson. Because a year after we're praising him for being the outsider who beefed up his staff with guys who had a ton of SEC experience, he's suddenly without those top two assistants after just one year. He had to shuffle his staff in a major way and not like in a way where he had all these dudes getting bigger and better opportunities because of this great season that they had. I'm trying really, really hard not to come to any sweeping conclusions about Harson as a coach and Harson as a person. Even though like, you know, you hear him answer, I think it was three questions in a 35 minute appearance at SEC Media Days. And you're just thinking to yourself, this guy might be a college football coach robot and not an actual human being, which would explain why there were a handful of Auburn beat writers who announced right after he took over that nah, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do something else. Again, that doesn't really make or break a coach. Some of these dudes get praised for saying absolutely nothing. And if Harson went 10 and two in year two, we're gonna, if, if that happens, we're gonna find ways to spin his personality into a positive. That's just the nature of the beast. That's how this works. If Harson won a bunch of games, we'd be praising the fact that he banned players from taking the elevator. And we'd say, see, his blue collar mentality was needed after Gus turned the program soft. And you know, at the same time, I'm pretty sure nobody has ever gotten up to the mic at a, at a championship parade and said, you know, we wouldn't be here if we took the elevator. Those trips up the stairs got us in the right headspace to get to this place where we're standing right now. But hey, when you're the new guy, you try, you put your own identity on the program. And you know, even if that identity is cliche football coach who actually doesn't have any personality, it's still considered an identity. I'll admit that there's even a part of me that wants Harson to succeed for the simple fact that like I talked about with Moorhead, I like it when people who aren't from the SEC come into the league and sort of debunk this narrative about how you have to be a culture fit in order to work. I don't care if the guy doesn't know how to order if he's when he's at Waffle House, all right? I think it's sort of a lazy thing that we default to because in my opinion, there's a difference between not understanding the situation you inherited and not looking or sounding like the people that you're trying to win over. Shout out to Brian Kelly. But if you're defending Brian Harson right now, you're doing so blindly, at least sort of. You're doing the thing where you say, hey, year one was a transition year. You're ignoring the fact that with a top 15 roster in terms of talent, 247 sports, talent composite, he had a six and seven season, even though he entered the league, he entered this year with the league's most experienced quarterback, and he inherited a team who had a winning record in SEC play the previous season. If you're defending Harson, you're not pointing to anything that happened after that old miss game against a banged up Matt Corral. If you're defending Harson, you might even point to the fact that both Kirby and Saban failed to have winning SEC records in their first seasons. And hey, look at them now. 
I can say this now that I admittedly judged Kirby a bit too much for that first season. And I remember saying, this is why you don't hire someone without previous head coaching experience at a premier program. That take has aged worse than an avocado and not just with Kirby. Well, you know, we got to remember that dudes like Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day, they, they showed that you don't need to follow that path of having some sort of group of five job and then a big time power five job or a lesser power five job. And then a, a, a job like, you know, Georgia or Alabama or Auburn, whatever it may be, you don't need to do that. But what Kirby and Saban both did in year two was make year one seem like a distant memory. Fair or not, Auburn is always going to be the most unique job in the country. And that's especially true now with the program's two biggest rivals doing what they're doing. There is so much angst on a yearly basis. And we're now at a place where, think about this, college students at Auburn, you're just starting off at Auburn, you're a freshman, you just enrolled, whatever, you're in the midst of your freshman season. They're not even old enough to remember a time when Saban wasn't waiting in that regular season finale at Alabama. It's only gotten worse that Kirby is now entering year seven at Georgia and also dominating Auburn. I mean, think about that. Kirby has actually had more success against Auburn than Saban has. That's nuts to me. I'm not saying that Harson is going to be fired if he doesn't achieve Kirby or Saban levels of success in year two. What I am saying is that I have no blind faith in him as of this moment. And that's not just a quarterback thing, though. The idea of Zach Calzada against TJ Finley in a quarterback battle, that, that just feels like a prank. That makes my stomach churn. And I, I do not wish Auburn fans the, the, the entire offseason of that quarterback battle. Hopefully it gets better. Nothing we've seen so far suggests that Harson has the formula to get Auburn to where it wants to go. It wasn't like he had his offensive coordinator lined up and ready right after he fired Mike Bobo. It took him three weeks to make that hire. You can't tell me that that was part of the plan. That's ironic considering that Harson clearly wasn't part of the plan himself after Gus Malzahn was paid $23 million to go away. Remember, beating Saban three times in an eight-year stretch wasn't good enough, and being frisky every other year wasn't the type of consistency that Auburn wanted or expected when Gus Malzahn signed that mega deal after the 2017 season. If you're asking me today, what's more likely? Auburn pays Harson a $15 million buyout to leave after just two years, or he lasts eight years like Malzahn did, I'm gonna take the first option there. And this fan base is not going to keep blindly supporting Harson if it continues like this. And quite frankly, they shouldn't. It's probably a good thing for Harson that Auburn now has this great distraction of an unbelievable basketball team that's probably, well, I shouldn't say probably, but at least has the DNA to go to a Final Four in the next few months here. But make no mistake about it, Brian Harson knows year two, whole lot of pressure on him. All right, let's kick it to Chris Doring. Great to be able to, to chat with CD. I've been wanting to talk Napier, and obviously CD is super plugged in. He lives in Gainesville. So we hit on that and a few other things as well. So here is Chris Doring. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is our guy, Chris Doring. CD, you are an unbiased analyst and you are darn good at your job, if I don't say so myself, but Thank you. be honest, you got to be honest with me here. Did you sneak in at least one 1980 joke before the clock hit zero in the title game? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I've spoken to this to a number of my Gator friends and, and Gator groups that I speak to. Like, you know, as a kid, I was... You know, 
terrorized by George. I've talked to you guys before about, you know, the the, the Buck Baloo to Lindsey Scott play and watching Herschel Walker and every year, like just leaving Jacksonville feeling de- desperate to get a win over Georgia, which we never got. And then, you know, one of the things that Coach Burger emphasized when he came to Florida was the importance of beating Georgia and how that was the key to us, you know, getting to every other goal that was out there on the list. And so, you know, I, I've, I've had – passionate feelings about the, that red and black team from Athens for a long time. But, you know, once once you get to do what we do here, it really becomes more about the, the people that you, you know at these different schools. And, and everybody in this conference is, is pretty much the same. It's just a different color set. It's just a different set of traditions. But uh, very passionate about their schools, all really good people. And so I, I've gotten – yeah, to, to know those guys really well. Obviously, Will Muschamp is a friend of mine. I played against Kirby Smart and, and have great respect for what he's done back at his alma mater. Uh, you look at uh, Josh Brooks and, and what he what he's been able to do. Like so many different guys that I've I've come to know there that I just like, and not to mention the fact, like. It, it, a couple of years ago, it was, it was LSU's offense, watching them, them do it at such a high level, and what a fun run that was on. And I got a chance to be up close and personal for that. And then Alabama's offense last year was another one of those kind of elite units. And then this year was, was Georgia's defense. And having been on the Bulldogs since the preseason, I just and I felt like it were a fun team to, to kind of watch and, and, and cheer for their success, even though that goes against everything that I've ever known as a, as a Gator. Uh, I, have great, uh, I have great respect for, for people – and people that do things at a, at a really high level, which I think this Georgia team did this year. You said a lot of meaningful things there, but my mind immediately went to, wait a minute, did you ever burn Kirby? Uh, so Kirby was young. I mean, I, he'll tell you the same thing. Their, their secondary was not very good back in the uh, in the mid '90s. So we we had some field days against those guys. And you know, there's there's one clip of me, you know, talking a little bit of trash to Will Muschamp after he hit me. And the, the Will Muschamp connection goes back to him being in Gainesville, and um, you know, my coach at PK Young, my high school coach. John Clifford actually coached Will Muschamp when he was at Oak Hall in Gainesville. So all I ever heard was Will Muschamp, Will Muschamp, Will Muschamp. It was like it was like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha from the Brady Bunch. And so I always had this thing. Like I wanted to be better than Will. I wanted to prove that I could. You know, had this little chip on my shoulder. So you know, us us having some pretty good outings against uh, that secondary when Will was there was fun. And then with Kirby, you know, kind of uh, getting a chance to play probably my senior year. You know, we had we you go back and watch that the, the stats speak for themselves from that game so we uh we had a lot of success against those guys and i i always when he's on with us you know i I made a reference this year about how you know it's disappointing for me personally to to watch that uh beatdown that occurred over in jacksonville and he immediately goes well hey you know i was a part of some of those on the other side back when i was playing so he's very very humble about it we have a a nice relationship and i i just i have a lot of respect for him Personally, and what he's done, like I, I you know, I, I've talked so much about what it meant to me to play for a guy, Coach Spurrier, that coached at the school or that played at the school that he's coaching for. I just, I think there's something special about it. I think there's something a little different about it. And so I, um, you know, I really have, have enjoyed watching him. I've enjoyed watching Jim Harbaugh back at, at Michigan. You know, getting a chance to watch some of these guys that have a little emotional investment in their schools and their success has been kind of cool to watch. 
The set that I brought up here a few times, uh, and this is one that I think you'll appreciate as a, as a former receiver, up until this past year, every national champ from 2012 to 2020 had an eventual first round wide receiver. And that's if we want to include Mike Thomas in that group because we know then and now he should have been a first round receiver. Georgia had Brock Bowers, but in terms of just wide receivers, we might see that streak come to an end. It would be weird to see a guy who left Georgia actually be the one to continue that streak, that being Jermaine Burton, who we found out on Sunday night that he's going to Alabama. He crosses enemy lines to do so. Two-year starter, had some major highlight reel plays, and the route running is, is real solid as well. But he never really turned into that go-to. And maybe that's an unfair thing to say about a guy who is only entering his third year in college. But I'm curious, what, what do you think his potential is? Because I, I'm a little bit more of the belief that comparing him to Jameson Williams seems like a bit much given what we've already seen from him in two years at Georgia. I mean, Jamison Williams was fantastic, and, and that, that kind of came out of nowhere as well. But, I mean, sometimes things happen where you're in the right position at the right time with somebody that really is invested in you doing really well, and, and, and things you know, maybe change up and become uh, like a 2021 version of what Jamison Williams did at Alabama. But I'm, I'm with you. Like, I, I think I was actually surprised at how much Jermaine Burton was a go-to in his freshman season in 2020. I mean, in, in some of those meaningful games, he was the guy they were targeting. Uh, go, go, back to the, go back to the Alabama game in Tuscaloosa there. I believe yeah. the, the interception was one on a, a dig over the middle of the field and went right through his hands. So it's not like he hasn't been targeted. And then before this season, was dealing with some injuries in the preseason, probably affected you know, both his uh, – start at the beginning of the year and, and some of the timing with the quarterback. So, you know, sometimes a fresh start is good for everyone, but I'll go back to what Kirby said. And I, I believe at 110%, you know, going to college for anybody is a time to grow up, a time to face adversity, a time to, 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 to do things that maybe don't feel as comfortable as you'd like them to feel and, and persevere through it. And that that's with this new transfer rule, as much as I'm, I'm for giving guys an opportunity to, to go elsewhere, I do think it prevents them from some of that maturation that they need to go through. Uh, you know as well as, as anybody after listening to all my stories of, of challenges and, and, and pushing through and what that meant to me in terms of becoming a better player, a better person, and, and in the end of the day more appreciative of the things I, I accomplished. So I, I just hate that it's so easy for everybody to decide they're going elsewhere because I, I don't think it's always a case where the, the grass is greener uh, on the other side of the fence. That's a fair point. And look, like I think staying at Georgia and given the fact that Pickens is, is off to the NFL and we're kind of waiting to see on what some of those other pieces are going to look like, you'd kind of be like, hey, why, why would you want to leave that? And then you also consider, well, if you're a receiver and you can transfer without penalty, without having to sit out a year and you can catch passes from Bryce Young, like why wouldn't you want to do yeah. something like that? Because he's going to maximize your potential. Like if you're Ja'Cory Brooks and you barely step on the field and he trusts you enough to make to you like he did in the Iron Bowl and then again in the Cotton Bowl. I mean, like, it doesn't really matter. And Joe Burrow is the only other college guy in recent memory who I think would just be a dream to catch passes for because he's not afraid to take a hit and he keeps play, he keeps plays alive, yeah. but not necessarily to run. It's to be mm -hmm. able to throw the ball. Who was a guy in your career at any level who you just knew was going to be able to keep a play alive and find you downfield? Well, obviously, I'm a little biased to, to Danny Warfel, um, the connection that he and I had. We actually, uh, on our, our Friday walkthroughs, we would always 
uh, go down into the red zone and I'd run the the end line and you know he'd practice throwing it up and and I'd go get it you know kind of like a Joe Montana the Dwight Clark thing and that actually came to fruition in our '95 game on the road at uh, South Carolina where right before halftime he threw it up I was able to go get it and get a foot down in the back of the end zone so we had a we had a rapport a friendship you know a, a comfort with each other Danny was an athletic guy probably more athletic than people give him credit for and there and is. was one of those guys that scrambles with his eyes up not with the intention to run but to let you uncover and I've talked about it time and time again how difficult it is for defensive backs to cover for extended periods of time the pressure that somebody that's able to scramble break out of the the, the pocket and keep his eyes down the field puts on a defense is is extremely challenging and Bryce Young did that as well as as anybody I've seen in a long time it actually was one to where at times I think he, he almost hurt himself and hurt the team by not running where there were chances, and he got more comfortable doing that as the season went on. But I love the unselfishness there and the understanding of, you know, yeah, I may be able to pick up five yards here with my, my legs, but I could pick up 50 yards if I'm able to let somebody uncover in the secondary and put that pressure on those guys to cover for extended periods of time. CD, uh, I'm not sure that I've asked you about this before, and I, I'm realizing I, I don't know if I have a reason why I never asked you about this, but you are a Hall of Fame just missed out guy in the NFL. I mean, like, you missed Peyton Manning, John Elway, Ben Roethlisberger all by one year. I'm not the first person to tell you that. I think you used up all of your quarterback luck at Florida. Yeah, well, let me say this. First and foremost, I did play one year with Ben. Ben got uh, drafted in my second year in, in Pittsburgh, so I was there for him, and I did uh, catch a, uh, catch some balls from, from Roethlisberger. So he was actually the last guy in the league that uh, I had played with up until uh, his retirement a couple weeks ago. But you're right, the timing was not quite there. And, and just to take it a step further, I don't know if I've expounded on this to you in the past, Connor, but you know, I, I'm at Florida. My last game as a Gators, the 95 season where we get blown out by Nebraska in the national championship game, the Tommy Frazier uh, highlight reel. Um, and then, of course, the next year, Florida finds their way back into the national championship game and wins that in 96. Uh, I, I go to the NFL in a couple different places, end up going to Denver in um, – in 99 after they won Super Bowls in 97 and 98 Elway retires and of course uh you know I miss out on him we go 6 and 10 that year and then I'm in Pittsburgh for the 03 and 04 seasons I get cut in camp of 05 and of course the the Steelers win the Super Bowl that year too so not only did I miss out on some some really good quarterbacks I also missed out on on some uh some rings that I I feel like I at least was had something to do that. Nothing more difficult. I love cheering for my friends that are they're out there doing those things, but I'm also very little, little jealousy inside to to not be out there with them and have the opportunity to to, uh, to win the elusive championship, the biggest championship. I got four SEC title rings, and those are very great, and I'm special for uh, grateful for those. But the, the national championship, the Super Bowl championship, those were always felt like they were right within reach and never had a chance to do it. Yeah, you're just you're Dane Cook. You're you're good luck Chuck. That movie. That's right. Um, that, exactly. That Great analogy there. <laughs> On a a very very different note, I, I want to talk Napier with you because he's kind of been the lost in the shuffle hire of this coaching carousel, and I, I think Florida needed that after Mullen made headlines nationally pretty much on a weekly basis this past year the biggest difference with Napier appears to be at least in terms of like before they get on the field and we actually see what it looks like schematically he has really beefed up that support staff personally I think being the game changer coordinator would be a lot of fun uh, how much do you think that Napier's approach will show up in the short and long term 
Well, first of all, the short term, the excitement level, as you kind of mentioned, there, this was the fan base that was really feeling low. I mean, things kind of just fell off of the cliff uh, pretty quickly after, you know, that, that, that close loss to Alabama. Everybody was feeling good about Florida's chances and then just uh, went south and, and was unrecoverable. But um, I, I think he is a sneaky really good hire and a really good fit for the University of Florida. And I'll say this, I, I kind of got a, a, a backhanded compliment from him. He called me and I, I, uh, I spoke to him. First thing he said is, hey, Chris, I want to tell you what a great honor it is to talk to you. You know, I, I, I watched you growing up. And I, I, so it was great that he acknowledged my success, but now I'm at the point where the head coach at the University of Florida is younger than I am and watched me as a, as a player. So you know how adverse I am to you know getting old and, and, and feeling like uh, people look at me as the old guy. So that was that was my first interaction with him. I was grateful for the acknowledgement, uh, but it, it was a uh, it was a stark wake up call that I'm not you know the youngest guy around anymore. But I I will say this though, Connor, it, it's a uh, what he's done in terms of hitting the, round, hitting the ground running, uh, the recruiting, putting a couple guys together that, that folks didn't think, you know, Florida would be able to pull in at the last minute with, uh, with that early signing period, hiring all the folks that you talked about. And Katie Turner may have been one of the biggest gets for Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Comes over from Georgia. Um, and, and has already made, made a name for herself here at Florida. You're seeing Florida in the mix with uh, a lot of different uh, names that, that hadn't you know, been in, in, in uh, consideration of coming to Gainesville. And then maybe the biggest thing, shoot, just, just the other day, Florida fans were celebrating the fact that Billy Napier was going to see Arch Manning. I don't know if Arch Manning is going to come to Gainesville or not, and I've never, I don't believe in moral victories here at Florida, but Florida fans just, Getting excited about the effort that was being made to go see Arch Manning uh, just, I think, speaks to maybe the disappointment that they've had in recruiting. And I'm not the biggest recruiting guy, but I do acknowledge that you, you have to have the right ingredients to be able to, to make a great cake. And so I think Billy's doing a great job there. You mentioned the, the, the army that he's putting together. I love it for a couple of different reasons, some incredible pieces that he's assembling. And it's a guy that owns a, a residential mortgage company here in Gainesville. It's given us uh, quite a few new uh, applications that we're working with to try to help get these guys some financing for the homes they're buying here in Gainesville. Is that how it works? You just funnel, like you just get all these, all these new staff members are just funneled to you when, when Billy Napier is not, you know, telling you, Hey, I used to look up to you big time. Yeah. He's like, he's just sending all of his new staff members. Hey, go see, go see Doring. He'll take care of you. Well, it, it's great for a couple of different reasons. One, you know, I've been a bull gator for a couple of years here. So I'm uh, obviously putting some money back into the program too. Um, you know, reputation as a player here and a guy that lives in Gainesville and does some different things with the university from an advertising standpoint. So, you know, it's not completely altruistic, but I, I do think, um, one, they trust me, and that's, that's a, a high compliment for me and, and the, the folks over at the University Athletic Association uh, giving, giving my name out. And, and, and two, the, the, the name recognition, uh, you know, some of these coaches that I've talked to said similar things to what Coach Napier did about Hey, uh, one of them was like, "Hey, is this, is this really Chris Doring, man? I, I, I watched you, you, you playing at, at Florida back in the day." So it, it doesn't help. That's kind of the business model that we created, anyway, is a, a recognizable name uh, that we can kind of build off of to uh, to get an opportunity to get business that we may not have otherwise got. And then it's up to us to perform, just like just like football, man. It, it's great to to have the chance to to be on the team and get put in the game. But if you don't make plays when the the time uh, presents itself, you're not going to get too many more after that. So we're about to celebrate 15 years, Connor, and. Uh, 
uh, April will be 15 years that we've uh, since we opened Chris Doring Mortgage in Gainesville. So another thing that I'm very proud of, and 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 something that I think. You, know, you go back and talk about football, you know, and the head injuries and everything else that's going on. Football is a great vehicle for teaching kids about life and perseverance and teamwork and goal setting. Like everything that I've achieved in my post-playing days, whether it's in the media, whether it's with my mortgage company, it's all based on stuff that I learned from Coach Spurrier or learned from other guys in the NFL that I've been able to apply in my, my post-playing days. So I'm very fortunate to have gotten a chance to be with so many great coaches and people throughout my, my college and professional career. The CD infomercial. I love it. No doubt. I'm here for I'm gonna take every, it. I'm going to take advantage set. of this platform you gave me, man. <laughs> <laughs> what about the, the, the quarterback situation that Napier's got? I, I've, I've given you all the praise for, for being first on Anthony Richardson. Everybody's kind of wondering, what is this next step? Because Emory is still on campus, and there's still a lot of questions about what exactly the quarterback of the future looks like in Florida. And, of course, that's always a question. But does... The year one starter, does that job ultimately go to Richardson? And if so, what kind of player does he become? Oh, man, it's so hard to tell because I think what we're seeing now, we'll go back to the beginning of this conversation, the the Georgia situation. Like Georgia, there were people, I think, wringing their hands in Athens about the idea of, of Stetson Bennett coming back for another year. We're talking about the MVP of the college football playoff championship game and some people wanting him to move on potentially because it might affect... You know, other quarterbacks that are in that room, more highly recruited quarterbacks, I think you're seeing coaches now understand you have to have multiple guys. It, rare in a, in a season you're going to make it through with just one guy with as uh, physical as the game has become. And secondly, you got to have competition. And there was a time where the quarterback position was kind of excluded from uh, having the same kind of competition that you do at every other spot. Coach Spurrier was one that was not afraid to do that. He loved guys to compete. He always would talk about uh, John Woodenisms, and one of the big John Woodenisms is that the coach's greatest ally is the bench, right? So if you have another guy that's out there that's, that's able to, to give you something and you don't be afraid to, to give them an opportunity if they've shown that they're, they've earned that. And so um, I, I think you're talking about guys that, uh, that, that Napier has been very outspoken about, very complimentary of Emory Jones already in his interactions with him and the kind of guy that he's been in some of the, the meetings that they've had and the workouts in the offseason, the leader he is. Um, sometimes, as we talked about earlier, a, a new voice, uh, a new offense, a new opportunity can bring the best out of guys. So I, I think Emory, as a Florida guy, I'm very proud of how he's represented our university. Uh, he's got to cut down on the turnovers, specifically the interceptions, but I think he brings uh, a lot to this team, and we know what athletically Anthony Richardson does. He's just got he's to find a way to play within the offense, whatever that offensive structure is. And then the, the transfer from Ohio State is another guy that, that everybody's really excited about here. So I, I don't know who it's going to end up being. Um, I'll give you a little bit better idea after I get a chance to be around more. But I do think you have to have multiple guys that have abil- the ability to start and you have to be able to create competition. So every day you're getting the best out of those guys in an effort to, to win that job. I was asked uh, about a week or two ago to come up with like an, a predicted order finish for the East, which I, I hate doing that until I actually come out with the crystal ball series that runs in August and I have to go through every single game that an SEC team is playing this year. And it gives how, you a little how, bit how, of a better idea. How can you deal. even do that? Like you don't even know who's going to be on the roster at this point in time with the with right. the, all the turnover in the transfer portal. So for people to ask you to do that, man, that's a, that's an unfair spot given the dynamics of college football these days. 
It was a uh, it was a favor to a friend. I'll just say that. Mm. Usually, okay. not not sitting here going on record and saying that you know I think oh this team is going to finish at this level and blah blah blah. I mean it's still all over the place. You're exactly right. And you know I kind of look at this Florida team and I have no idea what is a realistic set of expectations yeah. in year one because you know uh, Napier he's all about the long game and I don't necessarily think that the roster is at the level that Mullen or McElwain inherited. And the other part of this is the schedule is brutal. I mean you. Utah is going to start off in the top 10. Kentucky is probably starting off in the top 25 and then maybe Tennessee as well. So you're talking about potentially three ranked foes in the first four mm-hmm. weeks. And that doesn't include, oh, by the way, Georgia or a road game at Texas A&M. I mean, I'm kind of looking at this thing and I'm going like, I don't know, maybe maybe like seven and five. And that's kind of your like that's kind of your, your point that you start at. You just kind of figure it out from there. Where do you kind of see year one going with Napier? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm of the same belief. Uh, I, I spoke to one of the former coaches, and he was quite frankly, fran- uh, quite frank with me when he said that we just don't have elite talent on the roster, don't have the same kind of guys that, that Georgia and Alabama do, which is, is interesting to say. And I think the, the thing that Billy Napier and the staff knows they have to do above everything else is lock down the state of Florida. To, to see Florida... Florida State, Miami struggling the way that they've had the last couple of years and seeing all this talent from within the state go to Clemson and Georgia and Alabama and, and some of those other big programs, it, it's, uh, it's got to, first and foremost, has got to be to lock down those guys and get them to, to come to the flagship university of the state of Florida. And so um, I, I do think it's a long game. But I, I think at the same time, we've also seen some coaches here recently that have, have taken – their teams to more success than they thought were possible in year one. Notably this year, uh, Josh Heupel and, and Shane Beamer. The job that those two guys did at, at South Carolina and, and Tennessee, uh, I think far exceeded what even the most optimistic fan from one of those fan bases would have thought. So I, I do think it's uh, one where the enthusiasm is a bit tempered among Skater Nation, but at the same time, um, leaders sometimes – are able to come in and, and, and inspire and get the best out of guys and understand how to put guys in position to maybe uh, be more collectively than they, they are as, as parts individually. And so um, Coach Burrier was one of those guys, and I just, I, I've looked at the way that Coach Burrier has talked about Billy Napier and the interactions between the two. I think he, I think he sees a little something maybe uh, of himself in there and something that um, you know he's he's been excited and outspoken about. I think they might exceed expectations in year one just because of, of what he's able to do to, to create an excitement in that locker room and a belief amongst those players. Let's do an impossible question to answer and I'll say CD, you don't have to bet the house. I know we're, you know, I know your line of work. I'm not going to ask you to bet the house. That's not <laughs> something we like to do. I'll instead ask you to, to bet something just as valuable and that is your abs. Uh, how many years does it take Napier to beat Kirby? Oh man, I mean Florida did it what year before last, so it's not like it's that far away. It does feel it doesn't it? I mean, it feels like there's a as an incredible disparity between where George, George is right now and where Florida is. Um, I'm gonna say Florida does it in the next three years, though. I mean, I, okay. it, Florida can in this day and age of college football, you go get some some top talent. And you give yourself a chance. Not to mention the fact that all that Georgia lost this year. I mean, everybody that we've seen, it's either gone to the NFL or, or guys that are deciding to put their name in the, in the transfer portal. No, it, it doesn't. It's not. It, it, things change very quickly from year to year. So I, I don't think it's going to be forever. I, I think it'll it'll require 
um, you know, a little bit of uh, a little bit of luck here, but I, I think Florida is able to to get Georgia in the next three years. Any response to that that wasn't like five or six years probably to some is going to sound like absurd. But then you could also make the point like, look at 2019 Arkansas LSU. <laughs> that, was, yeah. that was that spread, I think, was like 41 or 42 points for that game. And then two years later, it's like, well, yeah. LSU is falling off a cliff and Arkansas is going in a different direction. I don't think obviously Georgia is going to fall off a cliff in the way that LSU did. But at the same time, you're right in that things do change a little bit quicker than we tend to, to give it credit for. Um, yeah. I want to hear from you. What, what, how many years are you? given the uh the over under on i would i was gonna set the over under at three and a half and so yeah. you, i guess you took the under, I'll take on under. That, but yeah yeah i i think it's gonna take a little bit and if they catch them at the exact right time we still need to see how napier is going to develop the quarterback position which last year was the first time in which that was really in question with dan mullen so I, i'm curious to kind of see how that that plays out because but, but don't if you, you don't have that Connor, like out. like the fact you're right about that the quarterback spot, I think having Kyle Trask for the previous year and a half masked Kyle Trask and Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Tony. Having those guys masked issues that were there that were exposed this year because they didn't have that same sort of exceptional quarterback play. Like quarterback play yep. can make up for a lot of other deficiencies. I mean, it, if, if you can give your quarterback some time and you get the right guy in, it can certainly you know, cover up some, some issues either running the football like it did for Florida or even defensively. It was one of the worst defensive teams in, in program history, but uh, still got to the SEC title game and still you know, went toe-to-toe with the best team in the country. So quarterback play can go a long way, as we know, you know I think even more so now in college football than, than ever before. Yeah, I was going to say Kyle Trask, Kadarius Tony, Kyle Pitts. Those guys can cover up the fact that Todd Grantham is your defensive coordinator and uh, Dan Mullen <laughs> has just an endless amount of, of faith in him. Um, I wanted to ask you about a different coordinator, a new coordinator, but an old coordinator as well, uh, Chizik. As, as much as I say that that is my guy, you two have really had yeah. a special relationship working together at SEC Network the last few years. How much are you going to miss your uh, your Friday night dinners and your fall Saturdays with Chiz? Yeah, I'll be honest. Uh, he called me a couple Fridays ago, uh, right before we were supposed to be heading to the national title game in Indianapolis, um, he told me what was going on and, and what he was going to do, and the announcement was coming out the next day, and I was you know, very happy for him, because it, it, at heart, he is a ball coach, you know, and I don't yeah. think that flame ever completely goes out, especially when there's some, some opportunity there, and this was a perfect situation with Mac Brown, um, a guy he's worked with and has a great relationship with, dating back to their days at, at Texas, um, and now that, that, that Chiz's kids are out of, out of high school, two of them out of college, his son will be right down the road at Furman, uh, so nearby, a little closer there for the Chiswick family to, to be near. Um, you know, the timing was right for him. And it, who's to say, like, Mac Brown's getting a little older. They have some success. They build it up, and, and Mac decides he's going to call it a career. Chiz could slide in that, to have that opportunity to, uh, to, to get – the head coaching job again. And I, I think there's a little bit of him, even though he was validated with that national title uh, championship that he had, I do think there's some people that, that kind of question his ability. Let me tell you this. You know this, Connor, being around him. The guy is an unbelievable leader. The guy is an unbelievable person. He's able to recruit at a really high level because of those two things. And uh, I, I think 
you know, he's going to have a lot of success there, both one, in turning that defense around, and two, you know, I think he does get that opportunity to coach uh, again as the head coach, uh, hopefully, at North Carolina when Coach Brown's time is up. But I, uh, I think the world of him, I will miss him selfishly. Uh, just such a great connection that he and I had and, and such great time sitting on set. The three of us, Dari, um, Chiz, myself, uh, it was almost like hanging out with your boys in the locker room and talking football. And so you know, I think a lot of people felt that. It resonated with a lot of people. And so I'm going to miss him selfishly and, and anxious to see what we do to kind of fill his void. It's going to be difficult to uh, to replace a guy like Chiz with his knowledge and, and his presence on the air. Confirm or deny that uh, Chiz tried to hire you as his uh, game changer coordinator for his defense. Uh, I did not try to uh, hire me for that, but I, I was in his ear back in the day. I actually thought – you know, there was a time where he might take one of these spring football coaching gigs, and I was like, all right, well, you go do that. You know, bring your boy with you. I'll coach the receivers up, and, and then we'll still be able to do TV in the fall together. But uh, there was little little buzz out there about him potentially coaching in the USFL, and then that kind of got uh, splatted as, as he ended up going to North Carolina. But I, I would love, you know, just, just learn. I feel like I know football really well, and, and, and what I know would fit in, like, his – pinky nail um, in, in his body. The guy's just an unbelievable encyclopedia of, of football and, and just learned so much from him being around him and, and, and talking through ball plays and cut-ups and defensive alignments. It's just been so much fun for me and an honor to have a guy that I respect that much as a, a, such a great friend as well. He's the man. CD, you, my friend, are, are the man as well. Really, really appreciate the time. Go, uh, go hit the, the sled push and we'll talk soon. All right, man. Appreciate you, Connor. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates for us. You never know what you're going to get. Figuring it out, rooting against your rival. Remember earlier how I said I was able to catch the, the Kentucky-Auburn game? Uh... I don't then respond to watching that game being like, hey, Lauren, what do you say we flip on seven hours of NFL? We were able to get out a little bit. There was a beer festival at Wakaiva Island that we went to in the afternoon. And then we came home, watched a couple of movies, one of them being Cool Runnings, classic, of course, Jamaican bobsled team back in the Olympics, what up? But you know the thing that you do sometimes if you're watching like a movie or a show with your significant other and there's maybe you know a playoff game or something like that going on. It's not necessarily like your team, but it's somebody else's team you're sitting there on your phone checking in on the game. And on the Yahoo app, you can watch the live broadcast. And sometimes I'll check in with it on mute because I'm not about to watch an entire football game on my phone while we're just hanging out. So I was checking in, you know, kind of on again, off again. And then I checked in just as the 49ers blocked the punt and returned it for a touchdown to tie the game. I said to Lauren right there, I'm like, Sorry, I've got to see the end of this game instead of watching Harry Potter down Gillyweed and Goblet of Fire for the 50th time, which again, great movie, but eh, we've seen it before, live sports. And so we did. Those final four minutes, I felt like I was watching my own team, even though outside of, you know, George Kittle and Robbie Gold, I, I really don't have any personal connection to the 49ers. The St. Louis Cardinals and the Green Bay Packers turned me into a different kind of sports fan. I become petty, I say bad words, it is a vengeful kind of hate. And apologies here because I know some of you listening are Cardinals fans or Packers fans. And I, look, not saying I have a problem with you personally, but I cannot stand 
hearing about how smart a fan base is. With the Cardinals, they get all this love as the smartest fan base in sports, and they don't show up unless their team is winning the division. With the Packers, their fans are getting scammed, and they continue to call themselves title town, even though they have two titles in the last half century. But whatever, I'm not going to get petty. So when Robbie Gold, the former Bear, drilled that field goal through the snow, and I got to watch mopey Aaron Rodgers walk off the field in disgust, I'll admit that I fist pumped so loudly that Rudy sprinted off the couch. And yeah, people are going to say, what do the Bears do in the playoffs? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And they haven't won a playoff game in a decade, which is exactly why I cackled at the fact that the Packers have now gone a decade without going to Super Bowl with Aaron Rodgers, and he might leave Green Bay having only won one. Maybe, just maybe, I can be alive at a time when Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers isn't punching my team square in the mouth twice a year. What a crazy thought. Does that make me petty? Yeah, <laughs> probably does. High school or maybe even college Connor would have fired off several tweets. Maybe I would have texted a Packer fan or two in my life and felt totally great about it. But as a 31-year-old adult, I at least felt some restraint. I did not do the petty thing where I, I started tweeting at Packer fans, though I, I very easily could have, and it was, it was hard for me not to. It's weird for me now to flip that switch because I write and talk about football for a living, and sometimes I can be critical of fans and the way that they respond in those moments. So I, I'm in a different kind of spot than you know, a typical person watching a game. That's why I wanted to take this question to the Facebook group, and I, I wanna kinda get the, the general consensus of like, Excluding, and by the way, we're talking about when a rival plays against somebody that isn't your team, right? Like, obviously, if if you're a Florida fan and it's Florida, Georgia, of course, yeah, you hate your rival with, with a deep and fiery passion. I'm not denying that. But what I want to know is when that situation doesn't present itself and your rival is just playing some random team or maybe it's a playoff game just like the one that I was watching over the weekend, I want to know how actively do you cheer against your rival do you troll friends who root for your rival? Do you post on social media about it? If so, do you limit yourself to one post or is it like, hey, you're just gonna, you're gonna get your shots up, you're gonna do whatever you can. And have you ever ruined a relationship with someone in your life because of how you acted when your rival lost? These are, I think, questions that subconsciously we answer them whenever our rival plays. So. Um, and especially when it's not a game involving one of our teams. But I think that's really, really interesting. So got a lot of good comments from the Facebook group. By the way, if you have not joined Saturday Down South podcast on Facebook, you should join that right now. All right, let's go to this first one, Drew Page. Drew says, as a Kentucky fan, I have no shame in hoping Louisville loses every single game in every sport every year for the rest of my life. Karma has finally caught up to their teams and I'm 1,000 million, we're just gonna call it 1 billion percent here for it with my popcorn ready. A lot of people listening to this have no love lost for Louisville um, and I don't necessarily blame them, but, um, it's weird how that has now gone over into football so much more too. And watching it this year and you see Will Levis every single time he scores a touchdown, he's got the L's going down. I mean, it's kind of cool to see people like that who, I mean, he grew up in the Northeast part of the country and went to Penn State. It's kind of cool to see people like that who embrace it. Not everybody grows up in the thick of it like Drew. And if you grow up in the state of Kentucky where you're kind of forced to pick, yeah, like that's, that's gonna come totally natural. I always think that's interesting too, when it's uh, a state that has multiple teams and you control pretty much everywhere you go. Like when I was in high school, I don't know why my mom got this shirt for me and I 
probably wouldn't get my kid this shirt in high school, but I had a shirt that was, you know, as a Chicago Cubs fan, it was a Suck the White Fox shirt. Not proud of it. Um, I think that one got ditched right around like the end of college. Uh, somebody, somebody found that at the Goodwill store and was like, hey, sweet, this is perfect. I hate the White Sox. A little aggressive, <laughs> a little aggressive. I remember one of my fraternity brothers in college saw me wearing that shirt and you know, he's a White Sox man. He's like, cool, thanks man. And it kind of hit me then, I'm like, all right, what are we doing here? Do I want to piss off somebody everywhere I go? Some people do. I just got to that point where I was like, ah, you know what, maybe that's not worth it. We don't need to be this aggressive. I can just root for my team and not actively root against them because they would probably assume I was a Cubs fan, but they wouldn't necessarily have any way of knowing that. Again, just a little bit more on the aggressive side. Caleb Tillman, Caleb says, as a Georgia fan, I watch Florida every week rooting for the other team. Classic, my two favorite teams are Georgia and whoever's playing Florida guy. I usually troll Florida fans on social media repeatedly when they lose, and they lost so many times this year, it started getting old, and I limited it to one post toward the end. Oh, good on you. I've never permanently ruined a relationship over the rivalry, but after Georgia beat Florida in 2007, I printed out the final score and the new BCS standings the next Monday going to school, and my best friend didn't talk to me for about a year after that, I guess until Florida beat us the next year. Man, if you're going to the effort of printing out standings and showing it to people, I don't wanna say you're asking to get punched, you're, you're at peace with losing a relationship. You are, you really are. And look, I get it. It was back and forth and that was at a time too where before Florida won a national championship in 2008, that's a, that's a nice, healthy, hey, this could be our year, this could be your year. But when it gets to a level this year with Georgia fans, I like, I mean, Caleb's kind of right. Like what, what more are you gonna say? If they lose to South Carolina, you've probably already ruined your, your best jab at your rival after they lose to Kentucky. Like, that's just reality. But watching every single game has to be kind of exhausting. At least, you know, you're probably, maybe Caleb's not sitting there watching three and a half hours of Florida football on a given Saturday, but at least checking in on your phone and being aware of because, heaven forbid, you miss a chance to troll a Florida fan in your life. Look, I get it, man. I get it. And, you know, Florida fans are going to have their fun as well. And Lord knows they've had plenty of fun in the 21st century and even going back to when Spurrier arrived. But, you know, I, I would say limit it to one post. Limit it to one post. You do multiple in a game. I don't know. That just seems like you want to get into a fight. And if you want to live in Facebook comments or in Twitter comments, Twitter mentions, whatever, Instagram, that's you, that's totally fine. Not telling you how to live your life, but you know, I think you, I think you pack a punch with one. If I had fired off one tweet, it kind of forces you to, to trim the fat, make sure it's really good. There are a lot of pretty good Rogers tweets after that game, but I, I would say limit, try and limit yourself to one if you can. Matthew Sadro says, as an LSU fan, I only actively root against one team no matter what, and it's Florida. Jeez, a lot of anti-Florida today. Uh, any sport, no matter who they're playing, I don't care. I just want them to lose. Been that way since the mid-2000s for me. Now that my little brother goes to Alabama, I'll troll him when bad things happen, but I don't do any other trolling or posting for any other rivals. Not my team, so I don't need to say much on the internet about them. 
Can you troll an Alabama fan? Is is that like a real thing? I you know when Marlon and I were were you know hosting on on a weekly basis together, you know, he'd throw the occasional jab in there, but like I don't really have anything to troll him with. Like, dude, I went to, I went to Indiana. Like, what, what am I gonna say at this point? You can point to the scoreboard there. Trolling an Alabama fan seems impossible. You gonna get him for basketball? Can't get him for softball. If I'm talking about an individual game, I mean, even that doesn't really feel great because of this past decade or so. Now, if you're doing that, if you started in mid 2000s and you got your jabs in pre-Saban, good on you. But I guess it doesn't really sound like that because his brother goes to Alabama now. But um, yeah, Matthew said when bad things happen, so like when Bama loses in the national championship, that's I guess that's the the bad thing that can happen. Um, Bama loses to UCLA and NCAA tournament. I don't know. I'm like, yeah, that's I guess that's bad. I guess that counts. But that's a that's a tough group to troll, man. If anybody can come over the top and just dunk right away with recent history, I'm not talking about like that's okay. So that's a good point. When Indiana, like, all right, this is I'm gonna bring a little Midwest example. Don't roll your eyes, people, but. Like a lot of people will talk about, oh, Purdue, Purdue, Indiana. And I was kind of at the forefront in college basketball this past week. And there are a lot of Indiana fans who will you know, talk about national championships and stuff like that. And they'll be like, oh, you know, look at the banners on the wall and Purdue doesn't have any. And it's like, well, I don't know, man. I wasn't alive for, for those national championships. Um, don't really feel like I should be able to flex about that. And if you're flexing about you know, like Michigan in football, you're flexing about these pre-World War II national titles to your rivals. I don't know. Seems seems like reaching, but, you know, get your jabs in where you can. Hunter Raglan says, as an Auburn fan, can't say much about this past year. Yep. Sorry, Hunter, this is not going to be the front end of the podcast for you. Um, Troll to the max, especially because Alabama rarely loses, have ended a relationship because of an Iron Bowl argument. Might mean too much. I have not, I don't think I've ruined a relationship because of that. I'd be curious to know what that conversation was like, Hunter. Um, one time in high school, I don't know why, like I wasn't even really anti-Patriots, but I remember calling someone in my class who like I'd become friends with and I like left a voicemail for whatever reason after that Patriots, Giants, David Tyree Super Bowl, just like making fun of him. It's like, I'm a Bears fan. What am I doing in this moment? <laughs> like, I, that's one of those where you wish you could have back and you probably look back on the 17 year old version of yourself and you'd say, well, that was unnecessary because that guy definitely didn't talk to him again, talk to me again. And I don't necessarily blame him. Um, shout out to Mike Howitz. I'm sure he's not listening to this, but my wife is a, she grew up a Pacers fan and never really been at a point in our relationship where Pacers bowls has been too crazy when we first started dating it kind of was and those uh those great derrick rose days but i have had the hey we need to kind of respect our boundaries rather she has told me please do not troll reggie miller that is the man of my childhood in terms of rooting for sports and i can't make the mention that reggie definitely pushed off and fired off that game-winning shot and i don't make the mention that reggie couldn't get past the bulls and couldn't win a championship. I don't bring that up. Again, it's just not worth it. Not worth ruining a relationship. Sometimes you just kind of have to be the bigger person in that situation. But yeah, Iron Bowl, I'm sure that brings out the worst in people. Justin Lonazak, our good buddy, Justin, 
it's great to have Justin on. Um, Justin's been interacting with us on social media for a really long time, so it's awesome to be able to get him on. Great, great week for him. Justin says, always cheer against them no matter what. Two favorite teams are Georgia and whoever is playing Florida. Troll status depends on uh, who they lose to. Georgia Southern is a must. A bad South Carolina team is also, um, I'm, saying, I'm guessing he's saying also, a team that he will troll Florida for losing for. Never ruined a relationship. They know what they're getting into. Justin's diehard. Um, I get that. If Florida loses to Georgia Southern, or if your your rival loses to a group of five team, all bets are off, man. That's tough. That is a really, really tough pill as well. Like when Georgia State beat Tennessee, shout out to our guy, Sean Elliott, friend of the program. When that happened in the opener, man, every other fan base just had a field day with that. The content that that creates now in the social media era, where all these teams now, it's like you have to come over the top and you have to dunk on them and you have to bring up like some social media posts that they had in the past. I know Arkansas did it to Penn State in the bowl game too. Man, like we're living in a new era of savage. <laughs> we really are. And I, I don't really know what's off limits. I know ESPN.com had a great story about that, about how these social teams, it's all about interaction. And they can kind of get away with it and they don't really have to respond to people directly. So they don't really get in trouble. Now it's kind of like, you're just waiting to see what that looks like. I think I don't wait so much for the savage trolling after a game. I wait more so for the opposite end. Like if a team loses to a Georgia State, what is the team account tweeting? Because that, that in, in my opinion, invites more engagement than anything. <laughs> Hard fought loss, get them next week. Yeah, you just lost to a Mac team for the first time in 50 years, but okay, thanks for tweeting that final score or not tweeting that final score. Love it when teams do that. Um, let's do this one from Scott Strauss. Scott says, Florida fan here living in Atlanta, oh boy. Uh, I will never under any circumstance root for UGA in anything. Never miss uh, a flag because I uh, can't miss an opportunity to see Florida beat them live. Oh, Florida, Georgia. That's what he's trying to say. Uh, and yes, I'm ready to get hurt again. Georgia winning an Addy is about as close to my sports nightmare as it gets. Living in, living in Georgia, I have too many UGA friends to walk around parading my anti-fandom. But at least generally speaking, the feeling is mutual. We just agree that sports and our teams consume us too much and it works. It definitely means too much, but not enough to lose friends over. That's healthy. You know what? That's healthy. I kind of wish I had that. It'd be nice to be able to have that in your life to have friends of a rival fan base that you can have a, a good legitimate back and forth with that just kind of keeps you both on your toes. You know, I, I've kind of looked around and realized like, man, like pretty much everybody in my life now is at least everybody that I'm like, you know, close with and stuff like that. And people that I interact with from back home, like everybody's Cubs fans. My mom's boyfriend's a White Sox fan, but that's about it. And even that, like, I'm not at that level where I'm going to like sit there and troll him. We're not, we're not at that point yet, but I, I think there's something healthy about having people like that to keep you honest and not in a degrading way where they're going to hum humiliate you and, and make you feel like absolute crap, but just know that text is coming. Know that text is coming if your team suffers an embarrassing loss. You kind of need that. It makes, the, it makes the victories taste that much sweeter, in my opinion. 
All right, let's go to, we got two more here. Let's go to this one from Wes Medeiros. Wes says, cheer against them every game, including bowl games, and I post every time they lose, more than I do when my team wins. Uh, and Wes is, I'm pretty sure Wes is a Georgia fan as well. I, I apologize. We've had a lot of Florida and Georgia representation on this. Uh, tensions are high these days, needless to say. Look, um, posting more about your rival losing than your own team winning, I, that's not me. That's not me. Um, because I always feel like karma is going to come back to bite you. And you're just asking for it. You really are. And I don't want to be the person who invites the trolling. And I've, oh, trust me, I have been that many times in my life where I deserve to get clapped back. Like, trust me, when the Cubs lost in the first round to the Dodgers 2008, they got swept. I heard about it. I was that guy who was so confident and I would take any opportunity I could to troll another fan base. Brewers, Cardinals, White Sox, it did not matter. And I remember being a freshman in college that year and hearing about it at a lot of different places. And look, like that's, that's what I signed up for. And it also kind of gives you, <laughs> in a weird way, it gives you the ability to, to be a jerk when you win. Um, but yeah, the, the, the frequent posts when your rival loses is, uh, I don't know. I, I've said that word a lot so far, but I, I do think it's a touch on the aggressive side. You know, you do you. Keep it respectful, keep it classy. We're, we're not at a point where we need to ru ruin relationships over posts on social media and stuff like that. And there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people I follow who like when they, even people in this business that sometimes I'll see people like flip on their fan hat and I'm just like, oh, you, are, you are just living in your own personal hell right now. This seems like it absolutely sucks. Uh, let's go to this, we'll end with this one from Alex McHale. Um, I generally root for the SEC in out-of-conference games. Oh, if you're ever wondering who is starting the SEC chance at bowl games, point to Alex. Alex also says, I'm a UGA fan, so I generally will only root against rivals when it will benefit us winning the East. Every year I find a player or coach in the West I like to root for. I also am not one to troll. This is a great strategy. Great, great strategy. Find, besides just, oh, my favorite team, is blah, 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 and then the team that's playing my rival. Just find that other team or that other player, that other coach, whatever it may be, that doesn't make you wanna pull your hair out and you can kind of just appreciate their success. I'll do that every once in a while. I feel like this, you know, NFL playoffs, for example, like Joe Burrow. I, I will watch and root for Joe Burrow every single time he takes the field, with the exception probably against the Bears, although ask me in five years if I have to deal with more of the McCaskey regime and get back to me on that. But I think finding that person, that team, whoever it is, is also kind of healthy. It allows you to sort of divide and conquer and not make you feel like your day is just the worst if your team loses and your rival team wins, and even if they're facing each other kind of disperse some of that anger and you know i don't want to say you're hedging your bets but in a way that's kind of what it is and that's okay i have no problem with that whatsoever you want to find that other team that other coach um just make sure that they're not necessarily a team that's facing your you know your specific team on a weekly basis or you know ha gonna have an impact on their division standings or or anything uh like that but i think that's uh i think that's perfectly normal perfectly fine i would encourage a lot of people to do that Thank you to everybody who responded in the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group. 
the schedule moving forward for at least through April. We're gonna do through the NFL draft like this. This is the temporary plan. Two pods a week. Last year, we were doing one pod a week around this time and kind of wanted to see how it play out. We we're doing a new format. We're doing two pods a week this off season through April, and then we'll go down to one pod a week until like media days, and then we'll pick it back up again. So usually those are gonna be dropping early in the morning on Tuesdays and Fridays. And then, like I said, from pretty much after ICC media days, we'll be back full go mid-season form, two pods a week. Got a ton of people we're gonna talk to this off season. Um, and hopefully we're gonna have somebody somebody on this week that I've talked a decent amount, but we have not had them on since we've been doing this format of the podcast. So hopefully that's able to, to come together later in the week. Subscribe if you have not, tell your friends about us. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored. Go listen to all those episodes of Saturday List Forever. Do that wherever you get your podcast. Join the Facebook group and hear your name read on air with Figuring It Out or Bold and Death. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.